Sask Egg Today with Doug Faulkner. Good afternoon and welcome to Saskag Today. Coming up on today's program, the latest saskagtoday.com roundtable has touched on a number of topics. We'll hear from Chief Agricultural Editor Kevin Hirsch with his take on a number of things that happened last week in the agriculture industry. As well, wild oat is among the most serious grassy weeds on the prairies with losses as high as $500 million annually. As a tool to help farmers manage this issue, the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee was formed in partnership with the Canadian Weed Science Society. We'll hear from Dr. Brianne Tideman, who is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta, on that. All of those stories and much more coming up on today's edition of Saskag Today. But first, it's time for the Agriculture Outlook with Precision Weather. And that's a presentation of Milligan Bio. Milligan Bio now offers biomeal for your livestock, giving your animals more protein, more energy, and more of what they need. It's also brought to you by Sean Prahitka, your Remax Blue Chip Ag Division Special. Welcome back to Saskag Today. The latest saskagtoday.com roundtable has touched on a number of topics. Chief Agricultural Editor Kevin Hirsch began by talking about the two major Canadian railways exceeding their maximum revenue caps, resulting in funding for the Western Grains Research Foundation. It seems to be a perennial thing. They don't seem to want to leave uh, any money on the table under the maximum revenue entitlement. It makes you wonder if there wasn't a maximum revenue entitlement, it makes it pretty clear which way grain freight rates would go. But both were over by give or take three and a half million dollars. Uh, have to add a five percent penalty to that. So Western Grains Research Foundation will be receiving about seven point two million dollars uh, to put towards research funding, and that's a uh, many farm organizations sit around that table deciding on uh, funding uh, initiatives from Western Grains Research Foundation. There is some talk that. Maybe that money shouldn't go to Western Grains Research Foundation, but very difficult to distribute it back to the people that actually paid freight rates. So nobody's ever come up with a, a different or better uh, way of doing it. So certainly Western Grains Research Foundation continues to have quite a kitty of money to draw interest from to fund research projects. He says the railways don't seem to mind paying out every year. Yeah, and you know, the, the thing is, it's I think it was about a billion dollars each that they took from uh, for handling grain transportation. And this is not a, a lot of people look at this and say, oh, it's a rate cap. Well, it's not a rate cap, it's a revenue cap. So it's adjusted yearly for both grain volume and inflation factors. So it, it keeps going up. So each railway earned about a billion dollars from grain transportation. So I suppose they consider it just a small rounding error to be three and a half million dollars over their revenue cap and you know certainly didn't leave any any stone unturned to to be under their revenue cap and not earning that amount of money. On another topic Hirsch commented on the sale of Borgo Industries to Linamar Corporation for 640 million dollars. Certainly it, it continues to happen and I, I would think that nothing is going to change for Borgo employees in, in the near term. I've had the pleasure of touring that plant at St. Brew a, a few times, 
very modern, up-to-date plant. It's like they're not going to be moving that anytime soon. But it's interesting, the company that bought Borgo is Linamar, and you might say, oh, who's Linamar? But probably people recognize Macdon Industries. Macdon is a big, a large manufacturing plant in Winnipeg that makes combine headers. So Linamar took over um, Macdon a few years ago, and they also own the Salford brand. So they, they now own Borgo Industries, which is the, the number one seating equipment company in, in Western Canada with a huge international presence. But yeah, we've we've seen lots of this also this week. You know, Borgo was a surprise. Nobody really knew they were for sale, at least I certainly didn't. Uh, so this came out of the blue. But uh, Bueller Industries of Winnipeg, the, the maker of uh, versatile tractors, has been long looking for somebody to uh, partner with it and and take uh, over the shares owned by Russian interests and that was announced this week that uh, they had found a, a sale for that and it's a, a Turkish tractor company that's going to take over for uh, uh, Bueller Industries or become the major shareholder of Bueller Industries. <laughs> Personally I actually uh, heaved a bit of a sigh of re relief. I run a versatile 435 tractor. I was not very happy with uh, you know, the, the Russian connection there or the fear that Bueller Industries may not be a, an ongoing entity. So happy to see that their future looks more stable. But he doesn't think it's unusual if these two announcements were made so late in the calendar year. I think it's just uh, coincidental timing. Not sure that it really has anything in particular to do with uh, the end of the year. I think they just, you know, get to the stage where they've got enough of the legal stuff done that they can they can actually announce. I think in the in the upcoming year, one thing to watch will be the decision by the Competition Bureau on the Bungie Viterra takeover. Bungie owns, uh, has an equity position in G3 elevators. I count about 18 G3 elevators spread across Western Canada. So uh, when the takeover goes through, there will be no doubt instances where there's a G3 elevator and a Viterra elevator in close proximity, will the competition bureau that rule that one or the other of those has to be sold? Or will they say, oh, it's only a small interest that Bungie has in G3? But that could uh, shake loose a number of assets that uh, could be up for sale in the upcoming year. Uh, but again, that, that's speculation, but something to watch for 2024. Hirsch then talks about the murky future of the livestock industry. You know, certainly the, the cow-calf uh, business saw a lot higher prices and, and some better earning potential in 2023. What prices will be going forward is hard to know, but almost all analysts believe that the beef breeding herd is not uh, being built back up again. More and more land has been converted from pasture and tame hay into uh, crop production. Uh, it takes much more labor to run a, a beef cattle operation. Uh, some of the, the operations are using the higher prices to exit the industry rather than, rather than expand. So I, I, I do agree that uh, the beef industry is, is, a, is a tough go, especially if we think that we want to be building our, our beef breeding herd. Kevin Hirsch is the Chief Agricultural Editor for SaskGangToday.com. It's time now for the Ag Review portion of our program, and that's a presentation of New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, Ag Review. 
Spring wheat bids in western Canada were mostly lower during the weekend of December 21st as strength in the Canadian dollar and losses in the United States futures weighed on values. Average Canada Western Red Spring 13.5% wheat prices were down by a dollar to $4.90 per metric ton across the prairies, according to price quotes from a cross-section of delivery points compiled by PDQ. Average prices ranged from $311.30 per metric ton in southeastern Saskatchewan to as high as $334 per metric ton in southern Alberta. Quoted basis levels varied from location to location and ranged from $48.90 to $71.60 per metric ton above the futures. When using the grain company methodology of quoting the basis as a difference between the U.S. dollar denominated futures and the Canadian dollar cash bids. Canada's larger barley crop in 2023-24 should see more of the grain move into feed channels than the year before, but domestic usage will remain curtailed by large corn imports from the United States. Recently revised supply and demand tables from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada raised the forecast for domestic barley usage in the current crop year to 6.155 million metric tons. That compares with an earlier forecast of 5.471 million metric tons. If realized, that would be up by roughly 200,000 tons from the previous year. Meanwhile, AAFC lowered their estimate for corn imports to 2.5 million metric tons from an earlier forecast of 2.8 million tons. That would still be up from the 2.147 million tons imported in 2022-23, but well below the record 6.141 million metric tons of corn imported in 2021-22 when Canadian feed supplies were decimated by drought. Prior to the drought year, Canadian corn imports had rarely topped 2 million metric tons, with a five-year average of about 1.7 million tons annually from 2016-17 through 2020-21. CN and CPKC Rail supplied a combined 99% of hopper cars ordered in Grain Week 20, an improvement from the 95% order fulfillment performance seen the previous week and matching the best combined performance of the year last seen in Week 16. The improvement in performance reflects improved performance for each of CN and CPKC in supplying 99% of cars ordered by shippers in Week 20, CN saw performance improve slightly from the 98% order fulfillment performance they posted in week 19. CN performance remains above the 90% performance threshold for the second consecutive week and the fourth time in the last five weeks. CPKC performance also improved with the railway supplying 99% of shipper orders in week 20 an improvement from the 93% order fulfillment performance posted the previous week. CPKC performance remains above the 90% threshold for the ninth consecutive week. The United States reopened two rail crossings between Texas and Mexico on Friday, five days after their closure in response to increased migrant traffic cut off a key export route. The closures had prompted alarm from railroads, the agriculture industry, and some lawmakers over the economic impact to halted export trade. 
growers representing U.S. corn, milk, rice, and soybean producers, among others, this week estimated that every day the crossings were closed, almost one million bushels of grain exports are potentially lost, along with export potential for many other agricultural products. The Biden administration last Monday had closed the trade routes due to increased migrant crossings. The U.S. Border Patrol apprehended about 10,800 migrants at the southwest border on Monday, according to an internal agency report reviewed by Reuters, with several current and former officials saying that was near or at a single-day record high. And SaskAg Today is always available on podcast. Listen to past shows whenever you want. Find them easily by going to gx94radio.com. Also, you can hear the podcast on your Amazon Echo. Just enable the GX94 skill and choose SaskAg Today. And yes, it is free. Livestock Market Conditions U.S. live cattle futures for February trading at 169.17, down 122. April live cattle trading at 172.75, down 70. March feeder cattle trading at 225.12, up 55. April feeder cattle trading at 230.62, also up 55. February lean hogs trading at 69.82, up 52. April lean hogs trading at 76 even, down 7. And that's the livestock market conditions. Welcome back to SaskAg Today. I'm Doug Falconer. It's sunny and minus 1 degree in the Yorkton-Melville region. I'll have your complete weather details coming up at 1 o'clock. Wild oat is among the most serious grassy weeds on the prairies, with losses as high as $500 million annually. As a tool to help farmers manage this issue, the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee was formed in partnership with the Canadian Weed Science Society. The goal is to educate and engage farmers to develop and adopt approaches to managing wild oats. Dr. Brianne Tideman is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. And she explains what the Action Committee does. It is a cross-industry committee and we are really working to provide resources, information, data, resources, anything we can kind of think of that farmers or the industry might need or use in order to help manage the wild oat resistance problem. So in particular, resistant wild oat, but really just wild oat as a pest as well. And uh, believe it or not, we are not the first wild oat action committee to exist in Western Canada. We are sort of the reboot, if you will, of the original wild oat action committee, which was originated in, I believe it was the 1970s, when selective germinicide herbicides came out, the group ones and the group twos. It was sort of thought that the wild oat problem was solved, and as weeds tend to do, they proved us very wrong. She tells us how the new action committee got started. So there was actually a letter that was sent to the Canadian Weed Science Society in 2017, uh, and it was sent by Dr. Neil Harker and Ken Eshpeter, who is a farmer near Daysland, Alberta. So they had had some conversations. Ken was really concerned about dealing with resistant wild oat and felt like there should be sort of a concerted effort 
Um, but again, ac across industry. So it's not just researchers or agronomists, it's researchers, agronomists, chem company representatives, farmers, the commodity group representatives. It's sort of as many people as we can get that would have a vested interest in wild oat. We're trying to pull them into, into this committee. So a letter was, was sent to the Canadian Weed Science Society where a resolution was passed at that meeting that they agreed there should be the formation of a subcommittee of the Canadian Weed Science Society called the Wild Oat Action Committee. And after that meeting, Eric Johnson agreed to sort of serve as the first chair of this reboot of the committee. We decided to sort of differentiate it a little bit. Instead of just being the Wild Oat Action Committee, we'd be the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee, just to sort of emphasize where we're at now. So the steering committee formed really in March of 2020. There's a bit of a gap there. It just took a little while to sort of get organized, figure out how and where and what our mission would be and how we'd get underway and get acting in the industry. Uh, and so we formed a steering committee in 2020, sort of developed our mission and, and have been trying to gain some momentum since then. Dr. Tideman explains her role on the committee. I am currently one of the co-chairs. I just came in as co-chair in January of 2023 when Eric Johnson retired. Sad face. So Eric Johnson was our, our original chair and then when he retired in March, he sort of transitioned it over to myself and to Kelly Bowles, who's an agronomist. He's my other co-chair. And then we have Nathan Eshpeter, who is our project manager. We've got farmers. So Ken Eshpeter is on the committee. Of course, one of the original letter writers. He's on there as a farmer. Industry members from Corteva and BASF the weed specialist from Saskatchewan and Manitoba, so Clark Brenzel and Kim Livingston-Brown, myself as a research scientist, Charles Geddes, Sean Sharp, Rob Golden from University of Manitoba, representation from commodity groups. She provides the main goal of the action committee. I'll actually give you our mission statement here. So we are a cross-industry committee devoted to developing herbicide-resistant wild oat management solutions through producer engagement, knowledge transfer, and research. We are working in a lot of various areas. We're still in some ways sort of in that growth phase of figuring out how best to implement that mission and how best to not reinvent the wheel or not step on anyone's toes, sort of figuring out what our, our best place is in the industry. So there's sort of continual adaptation and continual growth happening there, but that's really our goal. Some of it is making sure producers know about research that's already been conducted and then trying to get that information out to them because we do get questions on, you know, you really need to do this type of research and it's like, well, that research has been done. So trying to get some of that out to them, trying to understand what other questions producers have, what technologies they might be willing to try to manage wild oats because that's always a fun, what should I do? And you offer an example and they go, well, I don't want to do that. What else you got? So what, what are you willing to try? What are you willing to try on your farm? And just down to really practical resources like where do I get resistance testing done and how do I sample wild oats for resistance testing things like that so we're, we're really in a whole bunch of different areas trying to serve the egg community in the area of wild oats. Dr. Tideman then outlines where the resources can be found. So if you go to weedscience.ca, under the resources, there's a Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee link, and all of our videos and infographics are posted there. We have long-form videos, we have short-form videos that can be used on social media and that type of thing. All the infographics are there, they're downloadable. We also do have a Twitter account, X account, I guess it's an X account now, at our wild oat, the letter R and then wild oat. We're not super active on Twitter and we're kind of monitoring the whole Twitter X situation to see what we're going to do there. We're also looking to get a few other social media accounts set up in the next little bit to make it a little easier to find us. That weedscience.ca under the resources, the Resistant Wild Oat Action Committee is really where you can find all of those resources that we've prepared to date. She notes one of the resources includes an 
Elvis impersonation. So, the, oh, Elvis. Elvis is wild out. That is actually something that was taught to me when I was a graduate student. So when I started with Linda Hall's group at the University of Alberta, I knew how to ID Wildo, but we were in the field. We were working with some summer students and Keith Topinka, who was a longtime technician for Linda, was asking some of our summer students if they knew how to identify Wildo. And there was a couple that didn't. They were new to us, summer students, new to the egg industry. And he said, I'll tell you, the easiest way to remember it is to think Elvis. And I happened to be with him and I went, what are you talking about, Keith? Like, I do not understand. And when he explained it to me, it stuck in my head because it's such a unique, quirky take on a weed ID. It's something that I've continued using. I use it for our students that all look at me like I'm insane. But I have students that I've talked to, you know, four or five years after they worked with me and they go, I still remember how to ID wild oats. So that one has gone, that's as close as we've come to going viral, is our is our Elvis Wild Oat ID. So if anyone hasn't seen it, basically the fact that Wild Oat doesn't have oracles or claspers around the stem, it's got a deep V like Elvis's deep V in his shirt. The ligule is tall and membranous and it's kind of swoopy like Elvis's hair. And then on the side of the leaf blades, there's little hairs that are like Elvis's tassels. And then a lot of you will have heard about the counterclockwise twist on the Wild Oats. That's the hip swivel. Dr. Brianne Tideman is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. We'll return to our interview with her in just a moment, but first it's time for the Commodities Update, and that's coming up right after this. Commodities Update. Canola futures are trading up across the board this hour. March canola trading at 668.10. That's up $12.80. May canola trading at $675.30, up $11.40. March Minneapolis wheat trading at $721 per bushel, down eight and a quarter cents. March Kansas City wheat trading at $634 and a quarter, down eight and a half cents. March Chicago wheat trading at $622 and a quarter down 14 cents march corn trading at 476 and a half down three and three quarters of a cent march soybeans trading at 1319 and a quarter that's up a quarter of a cent march oats trading at 372 and a half that's up four and a quarter cents and that's the commodities update Well, we're getting back to that wild oat discussion. And, of course, there are issues now with some resistant wild oats. And there is a resistant wild oat action committee formed. Dr. Brianne Tideman is a research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. And she goes into the herbicide resistance issue in wild oats right now. Wild oat has always been one of the more common weeds, I would say, across the prairies. If you go back in the prairie weed abundance surveys that are currently led by Julia Leeson from Ag Canada Saskatoon, you'll see they're often in the top three. They've been bumped a little bit the last couple years with some weird, I would say there's been a little bit of weird weather maybe influencing some of that or some other weeds, kochia becoming a bigger problem in some areas, bumping it up the list. But wild oat has always been typically top three or at minimum top five. So it's always been a common problem on the prairies. As I said with the previous Wild Oat Action Committee, when we got our selective graminicides, our group ones, then the group twos, we sort of thought we solved the wild oat problem. The response 
of wild oats to the selection pressure put on by the group ones and twos has been the evolution of resistance to those products. And so what we're seeing now is across the prairies, substantial resistance to the group one herbicides, not as much, but increasing resistance to the group two herbicides. And in a lot of cases, multiple resistance to both the group ones and the group twos. And so a lot of farmers, if you lose all of the subgroups of the group one and group two herbicides, you're really left with very few selective in-crop herbicide options in a bunch of crops. Your pulses, your cereals, even your canola is sort of your your saver with Liberty and glyphosate, but the pulses and, and the cereals in particular there's really no other selective in-crop herbicide groups that will affect wild oats. There are pre-herbicides that can be used, so pre-emergence or preceding herbicides, soil-applied herbicides, residuals, that can be used for management of wild oat. Trilator Avidex is a, one that's commonly talked about. One of the concerns that we've had with that, that we've tried to highlight to folks, is that in the 90s, there was a, quite a bit of Avidex resistance found in the prairies. And we are seeing a bit of a, I would say already, a little bit of a turnaround where we're starting to hear a little more about avidex resistance again with increased use trying to manage the group one and two resistance. The other thing that's happened recently, some of the other products that we have would be group 15s like pyroxysulfone. In the last year to year and a half, the Herbicide Resistance Action Committee, the global group that sort of decides herbicide modes of action and, and all those types of things, reclassified trial eight, which was a group eight, into a group 15. So it used to be we had group eight products and we had group 15 products and we knew we had some group eight resistance. And now they're all, they're both group 15 products. And we don't know if there is automatically cross resistance between those products or if it's like the group ones where your FOPs and your DIMs are both group ones, but slightly different. So there, there's some questions there in terms of what that means for resistance management with wild oat. There's can be challenges with using residual herbicides for weed management because you do rely on on needing some moisture, which has been hard to come by in some places the last few years. And if you don't have moisture, then the product's not active. They're typically less effective than some of those selective graminicides, the in-crop group ones and twos. You're looking more at suppression than you are at control. But I think a big thing for farmers to remember is that resistance is a numbers game. The more individuals that you put any product on, the more likely you are to find the individual with the mutation to survive that product. So by using products that provide suppression, before you use an in-crop product, you're reducing the selection pressure on that in-crop product as well. She notes statistics show many wild oats are now herbicide resistant. In the last Prairie Herbicide Resistance Survey, so this is numbers from 2014 to 2017 is when that survey was completed. 69% of the wild oats across the prairies were herbicide resistant. 62% were group one resistant, 27% are group one and two resistant, and 34% were group two resistant only. We are in the midst of the current herbicide resistance survey. So it's led by Charles Geddes out of A Canada in Lethbridge. Um, the Saskatchewan results are in, the Manitoba results are currently being sprayed and the Alberta results were collected this summer. So they'll be sprayed starting next January. Based on the Saskatchewan results, group one resistance in particular has continued to increase. In the Saskatchewan results, the group twos and the group ones and two multiple resistance had kind of um, plateaued, but we've seen those kinds of plateaus before, followed by a sharp increase in the next round of surveys. So I, I wouldn't 
expect that plateau to necessarily be maintained over the long term. And that group one resistance, as I said, is still increasing. I believe it was up to like 75% of, of the populations in Saskatchewan were group one resistant or, or something along those lines. So still seeing an increase. As I said, Manitoba and, and Alberta, we're, we're working on those right now. So hopefully in the next year or so, we'll, we'll be close to having the full update from 2019 to 2023 instead of relying on the 2014 to 2017 results. Dr. Tideman explains how farmers and agronomists can scout for wild oat herbicide resistance. So I think a really good thing to do would be sort of middle to end of July into August is when wild oats start to poke their heads up above the crop. It's pretty typical by the end of July when you drive through the prairies, you can pick out where wild oats have survived in the crop. You see them. They're visible above most of those crops. If you have wild oats that are surviving at that point in time, I'd be asking the question of why. And sometimes you can go back and you can identify that, hey, there's a whole strip all the way down my field. I probably had a blocked sprayer nozzle or a spray miss or or something like that. Sometimes you can stand there and go, yep, I knew this was coming. My crop had canopied and we got rain and I've had a second flush of wild oats that I couldn't get into control. But if you've got a patch and, and quite often it's a distinct little patch. It's not a nice line down the field. And most guys are running on GPS guidance down the field. So th- those lines are pretty darn straight if it's a sprayer mess. If it's not a straight line, and as far as you know, your herbicides worked and you didn't have a late flush of rain, you didn't really have a late flush of wild oats, I'd be questioning why is that patch there? And I would be considering sampling those seeds and sending them for resistance testing to confirm whether or not that's the issue you're dealing with. Now, if you wait until that time frame when those wild oats are above the crop, you've missed any chance of of managing them really in crop. So even better, and people are going to shake their heads because this is a soapbox I get on quite often, is to scout after your herbicide application to actually see if it's working. Because if you can catch it early enough, if you're spraying at three to four leaf, you still have a gap there if that product didn't work to try and get something else. But at the very least, if you're seeing them above the crop towards the end of the growing season, I'd be thinking about sampling those for resistance testing. She can't emphasize enough the importance of checking your crops after a herbicide application. Absolutely. And and if you catch it within a week or two of your application, sometimes there's still a window there to manage it in that crop before it's just out of your hands. There's nothing you can spray. You don't have the equipment to do something else type of thing. That's really, I mean, we recommend it for every weed because if you're going out and you're having a dead plant right beside a live plant, side by side, you sprayed the same product. One's not obviously shaded. What? Why? Why is one surviving and one is not? There's early signs of resistance that you can catch before you get to a full patch and your field. That's Dr. Brianne Tideman with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. Coming up on tomorrow's program, she'll delve into the method of proper sampling. Farm Bulletin Board. The Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission is hosting their annual general meeting on Tuesday, January 9th at the Western Development Museum in Saskatoon. It'll run from 9 until 11 in the morning. Producers and observers may register to attend the AGM in person or online. And of course, producers and industry representatives from private and government organizations may attend any AGM as observers. So once again, that's the Saskatchewan Wheat Development Commission annual general meeting coming up Tuesday, January 9th at the Western Development Museum in Saskatoon. It'll run from 9 until 11 in the morning. And that'll do it for Saskag today for today. 
Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 12.15 for another edition of the program.